All right. Welcome to a financial planning podcast with a down to earth vibe. Sasquatch listens while ironing his clothes. This is Through the Pines. On this episode, we'll discuss bank failures and keeping your money safe. So yes, it is a hot topic. What's the current status of CDs, money markets, and cash equivalents? How are bond portfolios looking right now? What are the stock portfolios Perform, like what's their performance right now as well? What's the difference between the bank failures of today and say 2008? How common are bank failures? And what should we worry about with the banks today and recent market volatility? So let's get into those questions on this episode of Through the Pines. Financial Planning Podcast uh, will introduce the best, Forbes best in state wealth management team for Utah, as well as the advisor hub, fastest growing advisors to watch under 1 billion and the receivers of the Ameriprise Client Experience Award. That is the team, planwithbaxter.com. We have Rex and Brandon. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at Through the Pines, Instagram, pines underscore podcast, or you can subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, through the Pines podcast. All right, let's dig in. I guess it's another financial crisis. The banks are all going to close. We're going to lose all of our money. Rex, what's the current status of, of banks and bank failures in America in 2023? Well, I was going to say thanks for having us on our show. But after that terrible, <laughs> you know, picture yeah. that you just painted, I'm starting to question, <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just a little bit. So, no, I think... You know, it's interesting because this, these are serious issues, right? I mean, some of these banks that have closed, we've had, you know, the essentially three, two in the U.S., one over in Europe. Um, and the one in Europe didn't close, but it was a forced merger, forced marriage. And and so these these do have significant ripples uh, throughout the economy and, and throughout the financial markets. And so it's going to be fun to, to talk about that a little bit today. There's been a lot of articles, a lot of news articles out there about it some more accurate than others and so it'll it'll be fun to talk about so we're looking forward to it thanks for having us on your show again yes of course and brandon smith is here as well brandon how much money did you lose in svb (laughs) i didn't have any oh you didn't have any okay (laughs) this is good this is good rex how how serious of a situation are we looking at with the financials right now because you know a lot of these stories that are nationwide or worldwide, we tend to think, well, it's going to affect us and personally, uh, because maybe we have money in these banks or my bank's going to close. What are the chances of that? Um, and what also maybe give us a heads up on what's the differences between a, a bank and something like uh, America first or something that is not, it's, it's a little different than that. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot of questions all thrown into yep. all into one. So <laughs> Starting on fire. <laughs> Starting on fire. Brandon is on fire. So let me see how much of that I can unpack really quick. First off, lots of banks close, and we'll go through that in a little more detail. But most years, there's a number of banks that close and get shut down by the FDIC. And so we'll we'll talk about that. I think that this one is a little bit unique with Silicon Valley. Um, bank and signature bank in the U.S. And then, as I had alluded to, Credit Suisse being in the forced merger with UBS. Um, so Union Bank of Switzerland is what that originally, I think, stood for, if I remember correctly. You know, so if you had over $250,000, so most people know that that you have FDIC insurance up to $250,000, you know, per social security number that's on, on an account. 
And, and that was the case going into this. And then the FDIC stepped in and said, you know what, we are going to insure um, all deposits in these banks at this point in time. And so even if you had, you know, 750,000 in the bank or a million two or, or 10.1 or, you know, some other amount, then the FDIC was going to make you whole on your deposits. That is not always the case. Matter of fact, traditionally in history, that is not the case. Typically, if you have over, over that $250,000 limit and it's sitting in a checking account or a savings account, then you're at risk of, of getting either, you know, pennies on the dollar, depending upon, you know, how, how the liquidation of the bank goes or, or sometimes not any of those funds. And so it is an, an extremely serious matter. I do think it's, it's very interesting. This is the, the first time that I've seen the FDIC step in and guarantee all deposits. And so that now has set a precedence that yesterday, you know, our treasury secretary, Janet Yellen stepped in and said, the FDIC limits are the limits and, and these are still applicable going forward. And so she was trying to set the stage of we're not in a position as a treasury to guarantee all deposits for all depositors across the entire financial system. So why did they, um, why did they step in now instead of say previous years when there were a lot of bank failures and why these, these two banks? You know, I think on, on these two banks, I think it's it's more of a facts and circumstances issue. And so I think it's it's leading up to why these banks are having to fail <clears throat> as opposed to why previous banks are having to fail. And the primary reason that these that these banks are failing, and, and there's lots of other nuances to it, but part of it is that they they put a lot of their their depository funds into longer dated maturity bonds. And when interest rates go up, bond prices go down traditionally. And so that's what's happened over the last 15 months is interest rates have gone up, bond prices have come down. And because they they used longer dated maturities, then those, those bond prices came down quite a bit. And then they had a run on the bank looking for cash and they would have to take significant losses on those bonds if they were to sell out early. And so what the Federal Reserve and the FDIC did is they said, hey, we will buy those bonds from you at their at their par value, at their maturity value, and we will hold them um, even though they're underwater. We'll hold them until maturity, therefore providing liquidity to you. And that's why the FDIC felt like they had enough liquidity and reasons to guarantee all deposits because eventually they'd be made whole on those bonds over time. So is there anything Um, these banks could have done? In other words, is this bad management? Because yes, 15 months, but it might've been even longer. The Fed's been raising rates now for for quarter after quarter after quarter. Was there anything they could have done to diversify the deposits they had on on hand? You know, I'd say hindsight's 2020, right? It's, It's easy to look back on and say, man, why didn't you see that? One of the biggest issues Silicon Bank had was that they had a concentration of depositors, right? Which typically, right, and, and this lends to 2008, what happened in 2008, well, a big portion of it was, was poor lending, right? We, the banks were lending to, to people who really couldn't afford a loan, and they were doing that because they could get it written off as a, a collateralized asset-backed loan, right? The, the, the mortgages. 
um, subprime loans. And, and so anyway, they were, they were just doing a ton of bad lending. This case, it was actually the depositor. And, and, you know, you think, well, man, if someone's willing to give me money, that seems like that's just a win, right? That's, that's a good thing, right? I'm taking their money. What risk do I have in holding someone else's money? Well, the issue was, is that all the people that were giving Silicon Valley Bank, a majority of them were tech companies and startup companies, companies that specifically got hurt as the bank, as the Fed has risen interest rates. And as it's become more difficult to operate from a business standpoint, those people who had given the bank all their money over the last year have had to start pulling money out. And so and so it was kind of twofold, right? The double the one two punch where you have all your depositors starting to pull money out way faster than you would have ever anticipated. And then in addition to that, like Rex said, um, the the management of those funds just just wasn't where it should have been. And so I think between those two things that really put significant stress on a bank. And, you know, hindsight, they should have, you know, you can go back and say, yeah, maybe next time we should consider, you know, who who our deposit base is at. And I think a lot of banks do. Um, but but that really was kind of the big deal. Doesn't that dissuade people from running a, a good business? I mean, because um, now you're just bailing people out. In other words, there's an argument. There's arguments on both sides that we should have let the banks fail, and then there's an argument that said, "No, we, this is the right thing to do." So, where do you stand on that, Brandon? You know, I think in the short term, it feels really, really good to have the government come in and solve all your problems, right? Nobody, no, and, and that's why it's so easily accepted. Because what were would we have seen a run on the banks had had you know had the government not stepped in I think I think there would have been definitely a lot more damage done part of it and sorry to skip to the small numbers but Bloomberg um, said that just under half it's about 47.8 percent of all deposits um, at FDIC insured institutions were not uninsured so half of the money at banks is not covered. And people say, well, why is that, right? If, if you've got a limit of $250,000 per person, right? And Mary finally joined, I mean, you can have quite a bit of, of money covered. Why is half of it not? Well, the reason is, is if you have a, a major business and you're trying to run, you know, you can't have $250,000 at like 50 different accounts. It's just, it doesn't, it's not manageable that way. And so these larger businesses will assume some risk and put in more than the FDIC limits at a certain bank. And that's just fine until all of a sudden you start to worry that your bank might be in trouble. And that's a big, I mean, that's a huge chunk of risk. If you've got $10 million sitting in a bank and you're worried that you might wake up one day and it's gone. I mean, that, that really can, can, you can see how quickly people could get whipped up into a frenzy and just start pulling money out of banks that they don't have full trust in. And, and so I, I guess, to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's, I just, I'm reminded of the scene in It's a Wonderful Life where there's the, there's a run on the bank. And like, if you want to see it happen in the movies or whatever, that's an old movie and it's a Christmas movie, but, but if you want to see that happen, like how it happens and how people get emotional and that, I mean, that's, the scene is right there. It's, it's pretty wild to watch. Um, so, okay. However, uh, Rex, the, aren't bonds, fun to invest in right now? I mean, you're actually, you can make some money. Well, I, 
you know, rarely do bonds and fun to invest in go into the same sentence. <laughs> I know. Um, welcome but, to 2023. <laughs> but, uh, but I will say that, you know, for the first time in a long time, you're finally starting to get enough, you know, a little bit of yield and interest on on bonds and CDs and and, you know, cash alternative kinds of products to where now you're you're being rewarded a little bit for investing in those kinds of products before you know we would invest in them for for a little more safety um but then that kind of comes back and and like last year it's not safe when when rates are rising and so you know last year's a good example of that 1994 was a great example of that with a lot of high you know interest rate hikes during 94 and and those are years where the more conservative an investment portfolio is, meaning the more money you have in bonds, especially kind of medium term or longer term or higher risk bonds, things like that, then then typically the the more hurt or the the bigger downside risk you have exposure to during those interest rate cycles. But now that we're nearing the end of the interest rate cycle, we believe and we hope, you know, nobody knows for sure, but the Fed kind of indicated that we're getting close to, yeah. to the end of that. Well, today's March twenty third. The day of recording is March twenty third, and uh, we got a quarter point hike right yesterday, right. which might be you're you're assuming the end of the the, the hike. So we might be interest, uh, maybe one more, right? Yeah. And so we'll see. There might be one more or two more, or they may be done. But I think we're we're a lot closer to the end of the hikes than we are the beginning. And so at this point, you know, a a lot of the risk that was inherent in the bond markets a year and a half ago has has now reduced unless we get in you know unless something again happens that that causes them to continue to to just hike and hike and hike interest rates if inflation were to spike again then then that would be one of their primary tools is just like in the 80s you know the the early and mid 1980s they, they continue to hike rates because inflation continued to be an issue. And if that were to happen, then there would again continue to be additional risk in, in those bond markets. Rex, what are your thoughts on the Fed's tinkering all the time? Raising rates, uh, you know, bringing rates down. You like- know, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting. I, you know, the, the, I think it's one of the main tools that they have in order to to impact economic activity. And that's essentially all they're doing is they're trying to control inflation and the financial markets by controlling the interest rates. The higher the interest rates, the the lower the economic activity because it's cost more to take out debt, to grow companies, things like that, it slows down housing markets, slows down building. Um, the lower the interest rates, it kind of kind of puts some extra energy into those markets. To where now it's it's inexpensive to borrow money and therefore it's easier to start up businesses and easier to build homes and and things along those lines and so they're kind of trying to combat inflation from that manner and and over time that's that's proven to be one of the better tools to manage inflation although it's almost always in hindsight and so it, you know the fed is is frequently looking at past data to try and impact future uh, results. And, and there's not, you know, there's no way to predict the future. And so that's, they're using the best tools they have available to do that. And, and that is still probably the best way. One of the questions that you'd pose to Brandon, I'll, I'll just comment on as far as, you know, having the government step in 
you know, uh, on a bank and, and doing what they did with Silicon Valley and Signature Bank of guaranteeing depositors and shouldn't we just let banks fail? Make no mistake, these two banks failed. If you were a stockholder, your stock is worth zero uh, as of today. Now they're gonna go through an asset sell and, and pay off their debts. And if there's anything left, you know, they go through paying off the capital structure to where they pay off secured debt and then unsecured debt and then preferred shares and then common shares. And they go through as they, as they sell off, you know, the buildings and they sell off the, you know, the, the accounts receivable and they sell off the desks and the computers and everything else. And all that goes to start paying back all of that capital structure. But, but that's who got hurt in this. And I, and I actually think that for this situation, I feel like they did a phenomenal job of actually guaranteeing the depositors because this was at no fault of any of the depositors and, and that had that money at risk. And, and so I feel like this was a unique way for them to protect the innocent, so to say, being those that put money in the bank and trusted the financial system of that bank and, and yet still made the investor, the capitalism and the capitalists pay the price for taking the risk of owning the bank and owning and, and, you know, or being a, a bond holder and a lender to the bank and, and letting that fail as opposed to bailing them out. Like, like what happened in 2008 and the government just giving the bank money to keep it in force, to save the shareholders, to, you know, it, I, I, this is a very different situation. I saw Mr. Wonderful, a uh, famous wealthy person, <laughs> Shark Tank guy. Yeah. I don't, what's his real name? I can't even remember his real name, Mr. W- Mr. Wonderful. Um, who was who? We, we like to just refer to him as Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Wonderful. That's that's yeah. fine with me. Um, super smart guy. Uh, he's and he's big in cryptos too. Uh, he's big in a lot of different things. But uh, that was one of his arguments was that he lost. He would have lost money, and he was for let him let him crash and burn like that then people will understand who they're putting their money with in the future um but but you you make a good point rex as far as like that's not really what it's it's guaranteeing the depositors money and i guess you know we don't have we don't spend a lot of time researching the 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 business management techniques of the banks that we put our money in go ahead we are aware that they're taking some risk when they put in deposits larger than 250 larger than the amount yeah yeah larger than the fdic insurance of 250 and if it in an ideal world i i don't think i i think you'd have to set the precedence right you don't want to just pull the rug out from everyone but in an ideal world it would just make sense to find a way to pay for more coverage on that money right increase the fdic insurance amount and have those depositors you know pay a slight bit more in order to make sure that that's covered yeah. because i mean as we saw it happens overnight when people lose their confidence in a bank and they think that they could lose their money money just flows out and then flows into other institutions um other banks that don't they don't have room for it so it causes a lot of disruption in it and so i I agree with rex i think i think the way they handled this was really was really good um a lot better than 2008 although i do think there still is room you know to to maybe move a little bit more um, market-based so that we don't have the tax. And I know they say the taxpayer isn't going to bear any burden here, but there's a there's a fair chance well, that the taxpayers... Make no mistake, the taxpayer will bear a burden here, right. in my opinion, because the, the way the FDIC is going to end up ensuring that they're made whole as a government is they will end up 
essentially increasing the the FDIC insurance fees that the banks have to pay to the FDIC to insure those deposits, they'll end up increasing those fees. And and the bank, you know, I I, I will be I will be a little bit shocked if those banks don't pass those fees on to their to their customers in either higher checking account fees, higher savings account fees, lower interest payments. And there's lots of different ways that they can pass that on to the customer. And, and it's highly unlikely that they just, you know, that, that the owners and the managers and the presidents of those banks sit back and say, Oh no, we'll just decrease our profitability and our margin. No, on our yeah. bank and we'll just we'll just eat that loss instead of passing that on to our customers well i feel it was pretty See, di- makes- disingenuous for um yellen what's her sec- secretary what's her treasury secretary what's her treasury secretary treasury secretary janet, secretary, yellen. janet yeah. yellen to suggest that the tax which she did say that the taxpayers would not bear any burden in this and i just it, i don't we always do where's the money going to come from <laughs> it would make sense for the depositors to, to bear that, right? And, and and to maybe receive a slightly lesser rate in order to have that insured or guarantee. And I think I, that's just me speaking, right? But I think that makes a lot of sense to, to have that stability within the financial market system and not have government come in and bail out and solve the problem. Because when government comes in and bails it out, effectively, who's, who's paying for that? It's all of the taxpayers are paying for it. Whereas really who should bear the cost of guaranteeing that the money's safe? Well, it's, it's the banks and the depositors that should bear that cost. And so I think, I feel like we're moving actually towards a more positive, you know, outcome and a solution. Um, it's just probably not completely there yet. I, I think it's a tricky, a tricky question because when you look at, you know, the big banks, the, the too big to fail, right? And so you you're dealing with Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, those size of banks that have, you know, Bank of America that have, you know, millions of depositors across the country. It's, you know, I, I think it's it's a little bit easier to spread those fees out across all of those as opposed to a smaller bank that has a smaller deposit base but still may have significant deposits. Uh, but because of that, they're having to bear, they may possibly have to bear a larger portion of the fees per customer. And, and so I think it's a tricky regulatory process so that they're not picking winners as far as in the financial marketplace and the financial system. Because we don't want the government, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of, of having a nationalized banking system, financial system. And I'm not a fan, just me personally, of having the government pick winners and losers in specific sectors of the economy and, and in different industries. And, and so I, I think it's, I, it, it's a very delicate situation. And I think that there's going to be a lot of discussion over this over the next you know, 12 to 18 months as Congress looks at what happened, how did it happen, what regulations should be put in place, and specifically what regulations shouldn't be or should be removed um, to continue to, to keep the financial system stable and strong. Are you, are you guys uh, fairly confident this is, we're going we're to push through this and no more banks are going down? Or are we going to see the dominoes fall? There's always going to be banks. However, I will say as far as this wildfire, you know, is this the start of a wildfire that's going to blow out of, 
you know, across the country? You never know, right? The answer is always, it depends. However, with with the government coming in saying, hey, we're going to, in, we're going to insure all deposits and then saying we will also provide liquidity to any banks that need it, you know, over the next period of time. I mean, that's, that's significant. Had that, had those set of rules, those two rules been in place, Silicon Valley Bank wouldn't, likely wouldn't have gone under and signature likely wouldn't have gone mm. under. Right. And so, and so with those new rules, they felt like they kind of just took a big blanket and, and put the fire out. Now, is that the right thing to do? Wrong thing to do? I, I don't know. Right. But it, whatever, however, it, whatever it is, it definitely put out this kind of contagious fire that, that likely would have, you know, run its course. Now there's always unknowns. There's always things that could come up. There's always, you know, we just, there were a lot of things that weren't on like a deposit base, right? That wasn't really on a lot of people's radar. The The management of those portfolios wasn't as, as in front of people as it is now. And so yeah. you never know, right? There's always other things, but but I, as far as that running and, and, and causing a contagion of, of banks, I, I don't think that's likely to happen. This is a great list you sent over. So we'll re- Uh, will sort of the perceptions, everything. Right. And so when you think you see in the news that the banks are failing and we're, everything's going up in flames, um, that's terrible. But then you see this list that you sent over of the banks that have actually failed year over year. Holy cow. Banks fail all the time. Um, so this year we've got the two that we know of. This is just, I'm assuming this is just in the United States here. 2022 and 2021, no banks failed, but in 2024 of them did. 2019, another four. 2018, zero. 2017, eight. And then uh, five in 2016. Well, there's oh, five, eight in 2015, 18 in 2014, 24 in 2013, uh, 61 in 2012. And then you get into closer to the years when we had the financial uh, bank collapse there. So 92 in 2011, 157 in 2010, 140 in 2009, and, and things got started to get crazy in 2008 with 25 closing. And so when you look at those, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years there where um, double-digit banks, triple-digit banks were closing every year and this year we have two going down and so we th- and we think the sky is falling so why why are these two making the the media rounds and why is it such a big deal this year i think one of the reasons is that silicon valley is is a large bank right 209 billion dollars in deposits and so they're the 16th largest bank and the second largest bank to fail in the history of the US mm. and so you know, a lot of those bank failures are smaller that you just kind of listed off as far as the, you know, the the head count, if you will. Uh, whereas these two are enormous. I mean, you're talking the second and largest bank failures since Washington Mutual went down in 2008. Mm. So, so that's the reason that they're catching more to the headlines. Got it. All right. Well, what's it doing to stocks? How are we looking out there? What are stock portfolios doing over the last 15 months? Because the, the bond rates have gone up. So has everyone moved their money or what are you seeing in uh, in the financial industry? So so one, I think it's worth talking about with, with bonds. It's kind of interesting. You have somewhat of an inverse relationship. So you have a bond and if it's paying a set rate, let's say you have a bond that's paying 3% and all of a sudden interest rates move up to 4%. Who wants to buy your bond that's paying 3%? Hmm. 
Nobody, right? right? Because why would I buy your 3% bond when I go out in the market and buy one at four? And so what effectively happens is the value of your 3% bond goes down until, you know, it, it, let's say your bond value is a thousand bucks. But if you drop that down to 950 or 900, well, your effective yield on that 3% now pushes up to 4% on your investment, right? And those aren't exact numbers, but, but effectively what happens is as interest rates rise, your bond portfolio values can go down. And, and so, and that's all based on what we call duration, which is how long that bond has until it matures, until it pays back the, the initial amount. And so, you know, what's happened over the last 15 months is rates have been increasing is your bond portfolio, the values have been pushed down, but now the rates at which they're paying out, right, the effective yield on these bonds has gone up. And so we, we kind of wake up and we find ourselves in this whole new world, right, that is completely different than two years ago, where first of all, cash, I mean, cash is paying more than 4% most times, right, between CDs and money markets and things like that. Four to five percent is what we're seeing on, on cash assets. Bond portfolios are now actually yielding those higher and those those yields vary depending on risk and duration, all those different things. But your bond portfolios are yielding really good. And then all of the volatility that's happened with rising rates and, and, and how that can hurt business, the stock stock prices have come down as well. And so what we see and when we're trying to measure stock prices a lot of times we'll use a, a ratio called the price earnings ratio. And all that is, is, is that tells us how much do I have to pay? What is the cost to buy a stock giving me a certain amount of earnings, right? So it's the price divided by earnings. And so a lot of people will use that ratio to indicate, hey, are stocks expensive relative to history or are stocks cheap relative to history? Now, one very easy mistake to make is people can say, hey, if I'm buying stocks with low price earnings, right, if I'm buying stocks cheap, then my rate of return is going to be better. And that's unfortunately not a perfect correlation. Otherwise, it'd be really easy to invest in the stock market. And so, you know, you can't use that directly. However, it is a good indicator of overall price. And right now we're fairly average priced. And so if you've got money and you're looking at, at, at buying into either the stock market, cash or bonds, all three of those all three of those sections of the market are actually looking really, really healthy, really profitable. And so, you know, again, you never know, right? Things can always change, but, but man, it's kind of reset the whole landscape of things. In addition to that, our bonds actually have some, a little bit more protection when interest rates are higher. What typically happens during a recession, not all recessions, but some, the Fed will use that lever to lower rates. When you lower rates, and now all of a sudden you've got a bond portfolio yielding 5% and everyone else is three. Well, who wants your 5% bond? Everybody, right? And so you get to sell that for a premium. And so, you know, over these asset classes, things are looking really good overall. So is the economy in good shape then, you would say? You know, I, I think we got, we, we have a few struggles ahead of us, right? Inflation is terribly difficult. To, to figure out and understand, as well as higher rates. Higher rates are hard on business. And so the struggle right now is, is the Fed trying to effectively determine, all right, what's going to be more harmful to an economy? Longer, you know, prolonged high inflation or higher interest rates? And so that's kind of, that's what we're struggling with now. And that that's, you know, 
that can't be understated. That That's a significant headwind that the market has. We also have another political election coming up that likely will have some higher tensions, right? And the problem with any political election is both sides say that if you don't elect their politician, the world's going to end, right? And that adds a lot of a lot of turmoil yeah. and nervousness to the market. So true. And, and so the world will so end. You, you pick the wrong side, the world's ending. <laughs> and depending on how far to the extremes people are, they will believe that a hundred percent. And and so I would would I say that like rosy colored glasses, everything is is right in the investing world? No, right? I mean, there's plenty of things to make investors nervous, but in a lot of regards, that's good, right? Because yeah. when everything is looking perfect and everybody's optimistic, that's usually when you're getting towards the top of uh, of the market. Well, that, that's when COVID hits. Yeah, because we had a pretty. I'm glad, I'm glad you're gonna let me know when that hits again. Yeah, so well, be good. yeah, we had a pretty screaming economy and everything was looking pretty good, and then we just got we got took down by a by a virus. But uh, yeah, Rex, any any comments on on stock well, portfolios 2023? Well, they call those they call those black swan events, right? Like yeah. COVID or these bank failures or you know the the financial collapse of 08. Is it's it's essentially something that's unforeseen and yet has as massive impacts on on the financial markets and on the economy and and so those are things that you just can't plan for and in hindsight everybody says oh my gosh they should have seen this they should have been able to plan for this they should have known and and the reality is that nobody could predict that future and so you know we we take the information that we have today we we weigh the the known risks, try and anticipate as many of the risks as we can, and, and put together a good solid investment portfolio. I think as far as as the economy and the stock market is concerned, you know the one thing I will say is that I'm fairly confident it will be extremely volatile, right? <laughs> and so okay, <laughs> yes, okay. I, I'm stepping out on a limb, right? And so. Um, you're not you know, calling. That, that means you're not calling a bottom or anything. You're just saying volatile. I, no, I'm. Yeah, I'm just. I, I'm. I'm walking that fence and saying it'll be volatile. I. I do think that over time, you know, that typically we look back at at periods of severe market dislocations. Um, you know, we we saw you know a severe market dislocation last year in June and September. Where, where the markets were severely beaten up and down. You know, we're seeing one, you know, now in the financial system with, with a lot of the financial companies. And typically when you look, go out and look five years out from now or 10 years out from now, you look back and say, oh my gosh, what, what an opportunity to invest in, in the equity markets. And, and will this time be different? You know, nobody can say with any degree of certainty but, but my opinion is it's probably not different. You know, we probably will look at this period and look back and say, yeah, that was a pretty good entry point or that was a pretty good point to just ride through and not panic and, and not make any, any quick emotional decisions. Hmm. And so, you know, you look back at 2008 and, and things were pretty, pretty bleak. You know, when you had Lehman Brothers failing, you had, you know, the largest bank in our history failing with Washington Mutual, you had you know, forced marriages all across the board with Prudential and Wachovia going into Wells Fargo. You had, you know, Merrill Lynch going into Bank of America. You had, you know, Smith Barney going into into Morgan Stanley shortly after that. And, and so you had all of these all of these issues going on. And yet, if you could go back and put your money in the markets at those 2008 levels, 2009 levels, you know, would you? 
Yes. Would Probably. Be the yeah. Yes. Right. Because the market's up a lot since then. <clears throat> yeah. Right? Now, so, are you picking that, sectors? That takes a lot of internal fortitude to do it. Yeah. Are there certain areas where people are calling and saying, hey, I want to move my money to this particular sector versus something else? Or, or we just let it all ride right now? Well, I think, I think people are emotional beings. And I think that, you know, right now people are scared of the financial sector. They're scared of the banks. They're scared of, of, you know, which bank is next. And so I think that, that that's why that sector is down significantly right now. And so I think the, the average investor out there is kind of nervous of that sector. And yet I think the longer term thinkers, the longer term investors are are looking at that as as maybe the opportunity isn't quite here yet but at some at some point whether it's past now or in the near future at some point that will be an opportunity mm-hmm. and and so it just depends on at what point do you do you do that i think the thing that we do is is we have very diversified portfolios and so do we have some financials in our portfolios yeah do we have healthcare yes do we have transportation yes energy yes you know, consumer products, consumer discretionaries, you know, all these different areas of the market are part of our, our diversified portfolios. And so that way, if, if one area gets, gets, you know, it's stricken, then it doesn't impact the entire portfolio. And by the same token, you know, and, and this is something you hear me say a lot is, is concentration is the number one creator of wealth, right? And so, you know, when you're that diversified, you're, you know, you're not going to have something just double, triple, quadruple on you normally within a year or two or three. But you're also not going to have the number one destroyer of wealth, which is concentration. Yeah. And so those people that had all of their money in stock of, of Signature Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, that stock is now zero, right? And that that destroyed a lot of wealth in America for those shareholders that own those banks. Hmm. Uh, let's get back to, I asked you a question at the start and we forgot to answer it. And that was the difference between say a, a credit union and a bank. So like a, gold, a golden West or something in your, in a, in a bank, like what are, are, are any, is either one safer than the other or are they all sort of the same? So they're, they're similar, right. And, and I'll let, I'll let Brandon talk, talk about this a lot, but they're, they just have different um, associations that ensure the deposits, right? So on, on banks, you have the FDIC, on, on credit unions, <laughs> you have the NCUA, uh, the National Credit Union Association, that, that kind of in, ensures deposits in the financial, you know, in the, with the brokerage firms, you have the SIPC, the Securities Insurance Protection Corporation, you know, and, and so that there's a lot of different, different pieces out there. But Brandon, do you want to talk about some of the other differences between banks and credit unions and, and things like that? Yes. Yeah. So a big, big part is the insurance, which the insurance limits are, are the same. As far as I, I know, the 250,000 on both FDIC and the uh, FCU something. And NCUA. Yeah. NCUA. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so you got those coverages. Another big one is banks are often owned by shareholders and the credit unions often are member owned. It used to be that credit unions, you actually, you had to be part of you know, a, a company or part of a, an organization to get into. And, and in turn, the credit unions would offer a little bit better rates on CDs and a little bit lower rates on loans. 
Um, and oftentimes we still see that. We see that credit unions have a little bit better loan rates. They have a little bit better um, CD rates. However, banks do have strengths as well, right? Banks oftentimes can do more diverse lending. They can they can lend larger amounts. And so I remember when I was getting my degree in finance, one of my finance professors said, hey, it's, it's a really good idea to own both, right? A lot of people like their credit union because they like the lack of fees, they like the better rates, and, and that has its strengths. But but don't, you know, it's also good to have another bank account at a traditional bank um, in case you ever do need, you know, lending or things like that, that you can have both relationships established. Well, are there banks you, you guys like or prefer or, or tell your clients to choose or do you get into that game at, at all? We don't really get into that game as far as, as saying this bank is better than that bank or, or different things like that. The, the FDIC does have a, 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 a ranking, kind of like a credit score mm. of banks, right? And so they, they do have a, a ranking on there. Well, and I guess it's Federal Reserve, not the FDIC, but the Federal Reserve has a ranking to where, you know, one, one through five, one being extremely, you know, safe and secure, five being watch out but that but that being said most of these rankings are are in the rearview mirror just like your credit score yeah right? so, we're, so i think silicon valley yeah were they a five like no so they, they were like a three or a 2.6 or something yeah. like that right before they failed yeah. right and so and so that's just one piece of the equation and so if you do have you know, significant dollars in in a bank or a credit union, and that's a concern of yours, then then there's certainly ways to either diversify that, spread that out. We can invest it in other items. There are insured money markets that spread out through a money market. They'll spread out your deposits through, you know, 26, 27, 28 different banks and cap out the $250,000 amount at each bank. Interesting enough, that on a lot of these insured money markets, Silicon Valley and Signature Bank were part of the 26 that mm. were in the ranking, you know, of that money getting diversified out. And so, you know, if, if you happen to be in that insured money market and part of your deposit was allocated towards Silicon Valley or Signature Bank, then you still had to go through the FDIC process to get that portion that was allocated to those banks. But at least it was protected and the rest of your money was at other banks that wasn't part of those two that was immediately liquid and available to you. So, And, and talk about the difference too, just to remind me and everyone listening, like when you invest your money in a mutual fund and multiple mutual funds, or, or you, and you have it um, with a money manager, uh, you know, that's not a bank and it's obviously not guaranteed, but what, what's the difference between putting your money there and just putting it in, um, in your bank account? Well, at, at the end of the day, when you put your money in a mutual fund, then, then you, you know, through that mutual fund, you own the individual stocks, right? And so you're owning a piece of, of Home Depot or Microsoft or, or whoever, right? Whatever a ABC company that's out there. You know, if that company goes bankrupt, then if ABC company goes bankrupt and that mutual fund has 1% of their holdings in that company, then that mutual fund's gonna be down 1% because it's so diversified across so many different companies that are out there. And so it's not, it's not in a bank. A bank is a, 
you know, typically where you have a liquid deposit that you're writing checks on or, or a savings account, something like that, as opposed to owning shares of a company that's going up or down based on the profitability and the earnings that that company makes over time. In a money market, it's again, not FDIC insured, because again, you're investing in a money market in extremely short-term bonds is basically what a money market is doing, or it's, or it's doing overnight lending with the treasury or with commercial paper or different kinds of, of cash alternatives. And so again, that's not FDIC insured typically inside of a money market, unless it's an insured uh, money market that again does those, you know, kind of spreads it out through the FDIC limits throughout different banks. And, and typically the yield on those money markets will be maybe a third or a quarter of what other money markets might be because they're just getting the savings account rates of those different banks. Yeah. I, you know, all of those still carry a different kind of insurance. And so those, those are insured through the securities insurance protection corporation. And, and most financial institutions carry sig amounts of securities insurance, meaning that if you hold your investments at ABC brokerage firm an ABC brokerage firm goes bankrupt, but you own a particular mutual fund, then that mutual fund would essentially get transferred to a new institution. You still own it, you still hold it, but it no longer can be at that defunct brokerage house. Mm. And, and so, you know, it, it would only be if you own stock in that individual brokerage house that that stock would go to zero. And, and, and that means if you own that specific company, not that you own stock in in the widget business or in home TV, again, different companies out there, um, those would get transferred to a new brokerage house, a new, a new investment firm. And so, you know, it, it's interesting because people, people do get nervous and, and relearn this lesson every 10 to 15 years of, okay, how is this money protected? That's in the bank. Mm-hmm. How is this money protected in the credit union? How's this money protected in my, in my investment? How's, how's my money protected in my 401k? right? And all these different investment vehicles. And, and most of them all have their own kind of protection. They all have different limits. So it is a good reminder and a good question to ask periodically. But most of the time, unless you're, unless you're well over the limits, then, then it's not too much to stress over. Yeah. So. Well, and everything has risks. I mean, what's the risk of leaving your money uh, un, under your mattress or, you know, you're still risks and right, everything. Your house burns down. Right. Yeah. You get burglarized. I mean, there's risks there. You, you know, your mother-in-law comes in and, and <laughs> finds it. I mean, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, always the mother-in-law. Brandon, yeah. Did we ruin your s'mores numbers or did you have more? You did. You did? Yeah, I already, I, I used them all up. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, never mind then. We won't, <laughs> we'll go right on to, should we be worried about banks today or, or, or are we good? Or are we good? We good. There's nothing to worry about. Keep, in, I, keep putting your money in the bank. I'm not sure I would be, you know, if the Fed keeps raising rates, that's going to continue to put pressure on those bond portfolios. And, and my guess is that, you know, if one or two uh, banks had, had some, some weaker oversight and internal controls and, and had higher risk in those bond portfolios, they're probably not the only ones. Mm. And so I did see a chart the other day that was put out that looked at of deposits that were in bonds and there's about 50 different banks individually listed on there versus the amount of deposits uh, or 
you know, clients, customers that had over the FDIC limits. Mm. And, and that was kind of an interesting chart to look at because it does show, you know, that there's a number of banks that are kind of in that wrong quadrant to where they have significant mm. amounts in, in longer dated bonds and they have significant amount of deposits over the FDIC limits. And so if Janet Yellen truly isn't going to, you know, protect monies over the FDIC limits, then, then that's something that a risk that, that people need to be aware of and thinking about of is, is the bank that I'm at really the bank that I want to be over those limits at, or are there other ways or other investment vehicles that I should be using in order to diversify those deposits? And that is a conversation that they should be talking to our team about or their financial advisor or their private banker or you know whoever they're getting their advice from or multiple people. Yeah. Um, well, I will say it's common for bank presidents to come out and say, our bank is safe and secure. Matter of fact, I think Silicon Valley did that, you know, two days before yeah. they went under, right? Yeah. Is trust our bank. And, yeah. And then they went under. So. President doing doing his job. Okay. But two, 250,000, and you, you bring up a good point, Rex. And, uh, and this is Mr. Wonderful said the same thing. Essentially, he was like, listen, if you have more than that in the bank, then in the bank, not in just investments, but but just in a bank, then you're you're probably savvy enough to realize that you could lose some of that over two fifty, um, and so you know what are you what are you doing with the rest of your portfolio, and why is unless you're a business who needs cash on hand, why personally would someone have more a lot more than two fifty just sitting in a bank and not necessarily in some sort of investment portfolio. You know, I, I really appreciate you comparing me and Mr. Wonderful because all the time frequently compare. I mean, yeah, yeah. neither one of you so have I, hair. I appreciate that. So, so. <laughs> well, that, that's not where the commonalities end. Right? So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, I think a lot of people get, um, and I, I don't know what the best term is, but, but kind of a, a recency bias, right. Or, or a, or a familiarity of their bank, right? They go in, they mm. see the same teller, they see the bank bank manager, you know, they opened the account when they were a kid, their parents had had the, you know, their their money there when their parents were there. And and so certainly this bank that I've been at for two generations or three generations isn't the risky one. It's mm. the one across the street that my neighbor banks at. It's mm -hmm. not my bank. Mm -hmm. Right? And so they get comfortable with having over that that amount over the limits. And, and the reality is that they know the risk or they understand the risk. They know that 250000 is the limit, but they feel like their bank is the safe one, right? Mm -hmm. That it could never happen to their bank. And I think people need to get out of that mode and just say a risk is a risk, right? And, and understand what it is. And, and it's one thing if you want to accept the risk, and that's just fine. You know, we're not telling you don't take the risk or do take the risk. We want to make sure that, that you're making conscious, well-educated, well-thought-out decisions. Very good. All right, Brandon, last thing on banks and, you know, the re recency of the bank crashing here and bank failures and cash management and what we should be doing with our money. Yeah, just echoing Rex, I, I think making sure you understand the risk that you're taking is key in every part of an investing and cash management. Um, at Ameriprise, we have accounts where we can get that higher, higher, coverage on 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 cash deposits if we need it we can go out and we can get cds from multiple multiple companies as well right i mean there's a lot of different things that we can do i think assuming and making assumptions 
about the safety of something is is important <laughs> important not to do right that that you actually analyze and see and see what's out there overall i think what we learned from the banks is the same thing that we learned from covid and the same thing we learned from 2008 and 2001 and i mean all these things is is that nobody has a crystal ball we just don't know what risks because in order for something to truly be you know a market changer and, and pull the markets down typically it needs to be new it needs to be something that nobody's really thought about because we're all very much aware of the housing crisis and, and bad lending. And we're all very much aware of all these different things that have caused crashes in the past. But we've got to make sure and, and just understand that we're not going to ever be every downturn. And so that's right. why we build a diversified portfolio. That's why we accept that it, it's almost a freeing day when you can accept that there's no real safe place for your money. There's no, it's not safe in cash in a safe. It's not safe necessarily, even at a bank, even under the FDIC limits, there's a thing called inflation, right? And there's, and, and who knows what happens with currencies in the future. I mean, there's so many different things. And so that's why having an advisor and being able to really make sure that you're, you're diversified properly for a variety of scenarios and that fundamentally we are holding assets that are going to generate revenue for us and, and also be nimble enough to adjust based on on various future market changes when people hire you brandon do they assume you can tell the future you everybody knows i can't obviously but <laughs> but i worry that people but subconsciously i think there's something there right and i, yeah. I will remind them over and over and over like i don't know like i don't know what's going and i go okay but really what's going to happen with the market you know and it's like, i like i really just don't know right nobody nobody knows and 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 Obviously, everyone wants to find someone who says they can predict it, but that's as dangerous as it comes, right? And yeah. so we can, we can, we can estimate, we can look at numbers, but at the end of the day, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know are probably the most important parts of of an investment portfolio. Rex, how hard is it not to take credit when when your client's money goes up, so that you don't have to take the fault for it when it goes down? Well, everybody knows that that when the market's up, it's all us. It's right? all- when it goes down, it's all them. So I'm, I'm fairly confident okay. that most people are well aware um, okay. that that's how that. No, I, 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 you know, I, I think it's it's foolish to take credit on either side, right? Like Brandon said, you know, I, and I'm going to summarize exactly what he said. Nobody has a crystal ball. Diversifying is the key to avoiding surprises. Market corrections are typically unique and and people don't anticipate them, but they follow similar patterns Hmm. um, as we come out of them. And and having a well-balanced diversified portfolio and doing your financial planning and making sure that you have money available when you need access to money is key. And and so people taking time to do that is what they need to do. And, And that's plan with baxter yeah com. we'll throw it up here on the screen this is our youtube so yeah subscribe to our youtube channel through the pines podcast and you can actually see our wonderful beautiful faces rex brandon thanks so much for going over this very relevant timely discussion on banks bank failures and what we should know i'm glad to know the world's not ending yet today we'll see we'll see about tomorrow Like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram at pines underscore podcast.
podcast. And this has been Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. Thank you.